Now, today we're gonna go ahead and begin a brand new series. Uh, and this is actually a series that I've been looking forward to share uh, with you, church, for a very long time. Um, and it's called Prodigal Finding Home. Now, the title kind of gives away uh, what the series is going to be about. Uh, and like I said, I've been wanting to share this for a very long time. Actually, since the first Sabbath that I uh, came to Glendale, uh, and started ministry, I've been wanting to share this because this is probably by far uh, my favorite parable, and that is the parable of the prodigal son. And I wanted to share uh, this series um, for multiple reasons. One, because it's obviously my favorite, but uh, the reason why I kind of hesitated was because that was a summer where a lot of like the speakers in the summer and a lot of the you know guest speakers were sharing about this story and so i didn't want to overload everyone with the same story uh and sound like a broken record um or a, a copycat and so that's why i kind of held back on it but i think now is a great time and i think a very appropriate time for me to share uh this series with you and uh, as I said, it's about the prodigal son, or some of your Bibles may call it the lost son, the two sons, uh, but the prodigal son is probably by far the most commonly used name to describe this parable of Jesus. Um, and uh, I've talked about the prodigal son in a few of my uh, previous sermons, uh, not too much in detail. I talked about it in the prodigal prophet when we talked about Jonah and I talked about how there was a connection between the younger and the older son and uh, our prophet Jonah. Um, and I've shared uh, little tidbits of it in like small speaking arrangements uh, for like salt and whatnot. And so you may have heard, whether it be from me or maybe you've heard about this sermon uh, from some other preacher and heard it uh, in other uh, churches or events or whatnot. Um, and so I, I pray that this series uh, doesn't feel like a repeat of the things that you have heard before. Now, obviously, I can't guarantee that if you're listening to this series, uh, to our sermon series uh, for this Sabbath and the next two, uh, that it will be all different. Uh, but I pray that you will find something new or maybe re, um, revisit something of old uh, and remind yourselves, especially at a time like now. Um, but as we journey through this short three-part series, uh, what we're going to be doing is every week, we're going to take a look at each of the different characters of our story. We're going to look at the younger son, the older son, and the father of the two sons. And in that, we're going to take a closer in-depth look of each of these characters. And while discovering the comforting gospel message uh, that was spoken to the people of that time, of Jesus's time, uh, we'll find that this gospel message speaks very loudly and very clearly to us today in the year 2020. To begin, I'd like to go ahead and read uh, the prodigal son, uh, the parable, uh, and that's found in Luke chapter 15, verse 11 uh, to 24. And we're going to read only this part, and we'll save the rest uh, for next week. Uh, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 to 24. And this is what it says. It says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, 
journeyed to a far country and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would, gl- ha- he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and went to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf here and kill it and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. Now, many times when we read this parable uh, in this section of the Bible, we tend to isolate it and focus on this parable of the prodigal son. Um, And a lot of the times we forget to look at the context of where this story comes from. Um, And also just the context of the people that are hearing this story. Uh, And so uh, to understand um, kind of how we're going to be diving into these three different characters and all the tidbits and details that I'm going to share with you today. uh, As we focus in on the younger son, obviously, you know, the, the the father is clearly mentioned here. Next week, we'll be talking about the older son. Uh, But before we can even get into the details of what we can take from the younger son's lesson, uh, we need to know where this parable comes from. Now, um, this parable comes out in the midst of Luke chapter 15, where there are three total parables, and they're considered typically uh, the parables of the lost, right? And so before the parable of the prodigal son, we find the parable of the lost sheep, and then the parable of the lost coin. And that's found in Luke 15, verse 1 to 10. Now, all three of these parables teach us an important lesson and paint a picture of how God rejoices and celebrates when the lost are saved. So when we look at the parable of the sheep and the lost coin, okay, with this being the overall theme, we find the, uh, the emphasis of a God that seeks, right? A person, a shepherd that seeks for his sheep. Right, that's looking for the lost, or a lady who has lost her coin and is searching for that coin. Right? And so we see there's an emphasis of God seeking and finding the lost, or in other words, the sinners. But very interestingly, when we look at this third lost parable, um, we find that the parable of the prodigal son is not only focusing on a God that is waiting and being patient, But it also shows man's sin, man's rejection, and repentance, and return to God. And so in this story, there's this moving and very touching uh, story of a sinner's desperate plea. And broken plea for forgiveness. And a story of God's love 
and God's eagerness to forgive the prodigal son. Now, this is great and all, okay, and it's beautiful, but why in the world is Jesus telling this parable? And I think it's so important that we understand where, in, in the context of why this parable is being told, when it's being told, what's the backdrop behind all of this, right? Now, you see, as we know, when we look at the life and the gospel, uh, especially in the gospel of Luke, um, we find that, that Jesus goes about teaching lessons in the form of parables, right? Um, LNG White writes, you know, a, a whole lot um, on the parables of Jesus. And, and people take those lessons and we apply it to everything, right? Children's stories, um, just like moral life lessons. Uh, so parables are used quite often in Jesus' time. Um, but Jesus goes about telling these parables to convey and to teach a message. But in Luke 15, we find that he's actually sharing these parables in response to the accusations of the teachers of the law. Okay? So if you look at Luke 14 and look at the previous chapters, you'll find that the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, these people are constantly trying to find ways to get rid of Jesus because of whether it be jealousy, anger, or they're trying to catch him, say the wrong thing, right? You see in the Gospel of John, the same thing happening, right? They're, they're looking for ways to trap Jesus and to accuse him and to get him killed and to uh, throw overthrow whatever he was trying to do. And so Luke 15, his parables of the lost, Jesus' parables of the lost, happens in the midst of Jesus responding to the accusations of those trying to get rid of him. Okay? So with that in mind, uh, before we can actually understand what this parable means and the lessons that we can pull out of it, we first need to see and understand what Jesus intended this parable to mean to the people of his time. Okay? And how that related to them as they were sitting there listening uh, very attentively to the parable being told and trying to figure out what Jesus was trying to teach. Okay? And we have to understand this and we have to take a journey back in history uh, before we can apply it to uh, where we stand today in 2020. So we're going to take a trip down memory lane. Uh, well, none of our memories, but we're going to take a trip down in history and we're going to find out a little bit more about the context, the cultural context and the place of Jesus's original audience. Now, uh, first of all, the audience of Jesus uh, would have had their minds deeply engra engraved and, and, and embedded with these social and religious ideals, these different cultural attitudes and perceptions of life. Just like we in 2020 have our perception and our understanding and our, our, our worldview of how things are, uh, people in Jesus' time were no different, right? The example that uh, I tend to use and I've shared uh, before in a different series that we all have different set of eyeglasses, right? If, you know, me sitting here and I have my glasses on and, I, and somebody asks me, what do you see? Um, I would just describe the things I see in front of me. Well, I see a camera, I see a light, you know, I see you, uh, actually I don't see you, but I see the congregation, I see the nature, I see the trees, uh, I see my water bottle, uh, I see my cat, right? These are the things that we would first notice, right? But the only reason why I'm able to see those things is because of the lens or the glasses that uh, I have on my face 
that allows me to see those things. In the same way, in each cultural context and where we, we live, where we belong, these things are very embedded into us to the point where we don't notice that we're even wearing the lenses, but it influences how we perceive things, how we understand things. And so Jesus's time, the people had these cultural, uh, ethical, um, all of these different things, perceptions, attitudes, religious ideals, social ideals, all engraved into their life. So everything they saw was influenced by their, their being, their time. Okay? So think of it that way. We have a lens that we wear in 2020 when we look at the text. And so we're going to interpret it and understand it to our view, our lens, 2020 lens uh, of what it means. But we have to understand they have their own lenses as well. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Okay, And one of those cultural attitudes uh, that was extremely prevalent for people of that time, uh, of Jesus' time, was the idea of seeking honor and avoiding shame. Okay? Now, seeking honor and avoiding shame, shame is actually kind of uh, familiar to us or should sound very familiar to us as uh, Asian background or Koreans, right? Um, and I think it's pretty relatable uh, being a Korean or an Asian, right? Because think about it in Korean culture, there's this sense of like you have of, of pride, right? And a sense of honor that we have to maintain, right? In Korean culture and heritage, there's this sense of family first, and we have to bring honor to our family name, okay? Uh, and if you don't bring honor, if you bring shame, you bring dishonor, uh, then you're looked down upon, right? And there's this constant pressure to, to represent your family or your community in uh, a good light, right? So you see, in Asian societies, in, in Asian cultures, it revolves around this, this aspect of shame. Okay. Starting very early in life, shame is used in ways to bring about social order and harmony amongst the community. And, and whether you realize it or not, uh, Asian cultures uh, are very shame-based, right? It's a shame-based culture. And it's about don't do this, don't do that. Like, like if you're going to do this, then think about the, the consequences of your action, of how that's going to make us look bad. Right? You're going to put a bad name on our family. You're going to put a bad name on your community. Okay? And so I think this is also why it's like kind of hard as, as, like, as an Asian American individual, uh, especially if we grow up in a very strong Asian culture, uh, to be open about things like challenges or struggles or, um, or like to be risky and do things that are very non-traditional, right? We will always have this ideal in these uh, shame-based, like very strong Asian cultures that we have to put our best foot forward, right? It's always about showing um, our strengths and never showing or talking about our weaknesses or things that would make us look bad in the eyes of, of our neighbors or other people within our community, right? Because Unlike American or Western cultures, in Asian cultures, we're known more as a collectivist type of culture, meaning that we're, our pride and our focal point is not me, but it's we, right? The point of, of a collectivist culture is it's about us, right? It's about what we are when we are together, right? And so obviously, if that's the mindset, then any flaw, any weakness, any disadvantage, uh, those things would obviously make the whole look bad, right? 
like if there's a rotten apple, then that rotten apple is going to affect you buying that bag of other healthy, maybe possible looking apples, right? Um, maybe that's not the best example, uh, but this is how we are driven in Asian cultures, right? So it's important, right, in this kind of culture, in this kind of setting for us, that we're not supposed to expose like the flaws or bring shame to our family because we don't want our community to be hurt or tainted because of our actions. And so in Jesus's time and place, this is no different, right? This is a very shame-based culture of that, this time as well, right? And it was a very um, important underlying kind of uh, base layer ethical priority for them. It's all about bringing honor. We have to bring honor to our community. If you bring shame, then you're a disgrace, right? Um, and it was something that was embedded in their minds and, and it was their way of living. Bring honor, not shame. Okay? So follow through with me. Jesus is sharing this parable okay? and he's telling of this parable of a child who clearly brings shame to the dinner table. Right? And so this story in itself, Jesus is challenging this, this ethical cultural norm of the people of his time. Right? You see, it's not just the story about the prodigal son or the lost son. It's a story of someone who is shameful. So today we're going to be looking at the younger son, specifically the younger son, in light of this ideal of shame. Uh, and we see that this story um, unfolds in three stages of shame. Okay? The younger son, one, made a shameless request. Two, he then committed a shameless act of rebellion. And then three, he shamefully repented. So let's begin with the shameless request that's made by the younger son. And let's read through this again. We'll kind of break it down as we go. Luke chapter 15, verse 11 and 12 says, And then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger man, or the younger of them, said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood. Now, the story begins with an explanation of a man that has two sons, right? And you may think like, oh, that's okay. Good, good thing to know, right? But surprisingly... Uh, because of this introduction, we tend to uh, kind of overlook this and we focus on the younger son more than we do the older son. When I look at this parable of the prodigal son, yes, this kind of is the momentum and this is kind of the direction in which Jesus takes the story. And so people naturally tend to latch onto the story of the younger son. But I actually believe that this story talks more uh, about the, the older son, right? And, and, and the lessons that we can pull from that, we'll save that all for next week. Um, but you'll see why. Uh, and hopefully you notice um, that, 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 yes, the younger son is important. Obviously, the actions and the response of the younger son is what causes the older son to respond in a certain way, which I think, like I said, is uh, really more of the main character. But clearly, the way that Jesus starts this is... Uh, kind of leads us to think that the story is about the younger son. And there's still a lot of lessons that we can take from it. So don't think it's like a bad thing. But anyways, uh, prodigal, the word prodigal, uh, do you guys know what that means? Uh, well, <laughs> prodigal, first of all, when we think of it, we tend to think of the story of the prodigal son. You know, so we think of it as a son that was once lost but is now found. But it's actually an old school term that refers to someone who is, is wasteful. 
right? Um, or someone that's reckless in their spending and they spend lavishly uh, the funds that they the funds that they probably don't have much of, right? And so the word prodigal clearly describes very accurately what the son does. Okay. Now, uh, before we get to what he does, um, if you look at the request that's made by the younger son. Uh, it would have been very quite alarming for the people that were listening to that, especially the Pharisees, right? First of all, uh, and many of you guys may have heard this or have known this, but by asking for the portion of goods that falls for him, or in other words, asking for inheritance or for his livelihood, was basically asking for the death of his father, right? And so this younger son, he has the audacity to ask his dad, to give the inheritance to him. You see, inheritance doesn't go to someone when the person that owns the inheritance is still alive. It's when they have passed that they receive the inheritance. So clearly, the request that's being made by the younger son is disrespectful, right? It shows an extreme lack of love and appreciation to the very person that provided everything for him. Everything that the younger son knows is provided by this father. But the father gets this shameful or shameless request of asking for his part of the inheritance. So in the eyes of the Pharisees and the people of that time, this was a shameful, unacceptable behavior. Okay? Extremely disrespectful. And clearly, he was breaking one of the ten holy commandments of God. Right, The fifth commandment of honoring your mother and your father. And so very clearly... Pharisees would have had red flags going up as they're hearing this story. They're probably analyzing it and being like, man, what a terrible son. Okay. You see, the shameless request of the younger son showed that he wanted freedom. When you look at how he responds, okay, even though he had everything he wanted, the one thing he didn't have or what he thought he didn't have was freedom. He wanted to be free from his family and he wanted to go and satisfy his selfish desires. Now, traditionally, uh, in Jesus' time, in biblical times, if the son of this nature in this story were to make a request like, the, like so to the father, then the father has uh, this obligation or this right to publicly shame his son. So it's kind of to give back that shame that was given to him, right? Basically play the reverse Uno card and just like lay it on the table. Okay? And basically, what the father could have done is he could have easily simply disowned the son okay, publicly. He could have uh, disinherited the son, not give him any of the inheritance. And he could even remove him from the family records uh, and could even consider him as dead to the family. Right? So they could completely cut ties with this, this, this rebellious, uh, disrespectful, uh, shameless son. Right? Now... In our story, uh, the word that's used for inheritance, or in some of your translations, it may say estates um, or goods, is actually the word uh, in Greek called ushia, okay, usia, okay, usia, uh, which is used here uh, in our story. But actually, this is the only time that we see this word being used by Jesus. If you look at the rest of the Gospel of Luke and a few of, of the other Gospels, um, there's a word that's more commonly used in this time, and that's called uh, kleronomia, nia, sorry, kleronomia, uh, and this is a word that's used more frequently than usia. 
Okay. Now, the difference is important to understand, and it's actually quite striking when you realize the difference between these two words. Because usiyam, it refers to property or material possessions, but not with the intent of taking care of it or managing that property. You see, inheritance in biblical times was not something that was just like a sum of money that was given and that was it. It's, it's things like, like sheep, cattle, homes, land, material possessions that would in turn be used to continue to, uh, to care for under the family name. And so it's basically receiving ownership for something that belongs to the family and having the responsibility that goes along with it. Okay, but the word usia that's used here by Jesus refers to the ideal that he receives this property, he receives the possession of material possessions, but he has no intent of taking care of it. Okay, the other word kleronomia refers to possessions in the same way, but it's used in the sense that it's going to be taken care of, it's going to be used for the honor of the family and to be taken care of within the confines of the family. So very clearly, you see that Jesus is painting a picture of this younger son that has no intentions to be responsible and wants to be reckless. He wants to be a prodigal and he wants to go off and squander the wealth that's given. Okay? He wants to take his shares, but he wants to have no responsibility whatsoever and use it for his own desires. Okay, so this is the picture that Jesus is now painting. And you can imagine the face of disgust that the Pharisees are having as they hear Jesus share and describe this younger son. Now, in, in such a community as in our story and in Jesus' time, um, word would have easily been spread around, right? Uh, it would have been the talk of the town. It would have been the breaking news, right? It would have been the TMZ uh, article that, that breaks all the news of, of life. Okay? Everyone would have heard about this, that there was this son who was being completely disrespectful and had no regard for his father while he was still alive. And everyone would have expected the father to be furious and angry at the son who had brought shame and dishonor to the family. But instead, we find a very surprising turn and shock in our story. Because the father, without hesitation, grants the younger son's request. Instead of slapping him across the face because of the disrespect that he had brought to the family, the father simply gives the younger son all that he wanted. You see, this was a shameless request. It was a shameless request that was granted by the father. And this leads us to the shameless rebellion of the younger son. Look at verse 13 to 16. This is what it says. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomachs with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. You see, the son knew very well what he wanted. He had a plan. Okay? And it didn't take him long to achieve that. He gathered all he had. Okay? And he went off to a far country. Now, the language that's used, gathered all together, uh, literally, he takes this possession. Obviously, it's not like coins. But he trades it off. 
uh, for material possession, for money, right? And so in biblical times, uh, obviously you couldn't take sheep and carry that. There was just too much, right? So the younger son would have received maybe one third, about one third of his father's inheritance. And he can't take all of that with them, but he can have like these kind of promises or it's kind of like a will. And so he takes that and sells that. And so, well, you can have this when my father dies, uh, this inheritance will be yours, right? And so he exchanges that for stuff that he can just simply spend and lavish in, in uh, selfish living. So we see that he gathers a, and he goes. He has a plan. He knows what he wants to do. Um, and he goes off into this far country. Now, when we see far country, we don't think of it too much, right? Especially in our lens of 2020, we think, oh, he's just going off to a distant land, right? And we're thinking like, oh, it's like, you know, flying off to Sin City. He's going to Vegas, right? But the connotation of going to a far country was much greater than simply just traveling to a different place, right? Remember, Jesus was talking to an audience of people that were Jewish descent, right? The, the Pharisees, the people of the time, all were Jewish. And especially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had this notion or this, this understanding that they were the chosen ones, that they were the ones that had the promises of God. Right? They were God's chosen people, and only they could receive salvation. That's kind of the underlying idea and the understanding that these Jewish people had. So you see the younger son wanting freedom from his family, uh, but also he wanted freedom from his community. So by going off into a far country, he didn't have to find himself being accountable for his actions and mistakes. Remember, talk of the town goes around very quickly. It spreads like wildfire. And, and for him to go off to a far distant land where he doesn't have to deal with any of those people, people that he may know, word doesn't have to spread, he's in a totally foreign land, right? Now, um, this is the ideal. Uh, you guys have heard of the saying, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? It's a very uh, um, well-used, uh, I guess, phrase. Uh, where basically w what happens there stays there. And so the younger son has this mentality as he's going to this far distant land. He's going to Gentile land. Get, hear, hear me out on this. He's going to a far land, which is a Gentile land, which Jewish people would have seen as, oh, that's a no-no. Like You shouldn't even be dealing with those kind of people, right? And this is the ideal of the younger son. Let me go to a far distant land, to, to the Gentile region. And let me not deal with the eyes of my own people, right? Let me go plunder all my money and let me go do all of these things outside of the reach of my community. Okay. Now you see this action, his rebellion okay, symbolizes the foolishness of sinners trying to flee from God, trying to get as far away as possible. And we know the story, right? We see it here. He, he spends all that he has, all of his wealth, to the point where he has absolutely nothing left. Right? Calamity strikes. The party is over. He's now bankrupt. There's a famine in the land. His, his newfound friends in this Gentile country are no longer with him because who wants to hang out with a man that has no money? that can't pay for the drinks or pay for, for all the, the activities, okay? You see, at the end of verse 14, for the first time in this young lad's life, okay, he began to be in want. Or in other translations, it may say that he began to be impoverished or come up short, 
You see, his own bad decisions, the famine brought him to this point of desperation. He had abandoned his family. He had abandoned his so-called friends, or they had abandoned him. And now he was this stranger living in a foreign Gentile land. Okay. He had nowhere to go, and he had no one that he could turn to for help. You see, while seeking the pleasures of this world, he ended up finding pain, emptiness, and brokenness. And you would think, well, all right, lad, it's time to go home, right? No point being like this, right? But no, very interestingly, in verse 15, we find a very different response. And we find a different plan that he has, okay? His, he has an idea of what he's going to now try to do, okay? He sa- it says he goes... And he gets hired by someone of the Gentile land. And he gets a job feeding pigs. Now, the word hired, uh, in some of your translations uh, may say, is actually a weird word. Um, And I think it's actually a stretch and kind of a a false interpretation um, and misleading interpretation. Because when we think of hired, we think, okay, he's decided to be a responsible young lad and go and find a job, right? When you have no money, you don't just lay there and do nothing. You go and you get a job and you make money and you rebuild your assets and you, you pick yourself back up, right? Be responsible. And so we look at this and be like, oh, well, what a responsible young man, right? He has the brains to go get a job, okay? What a good boy. But actually, okay, the word that's used in the Greek is actually a verb. Um, and the word in the Greek is uh, kolao, kolao, okay? which literally means glued. Okay? So now you're thinking, wait, but that doesn't make sense. He, he was glued, right? Glued, to himself, glued himself to a citizen of the country. Like, what does that mean? Right? So you see, let me explain. Okay? Kolao, to be glued to someone, doesn't mean you have a job contract. Doesn't mean you got hired and you have a a good paying job, right? This wasn't a a new hire. He was was a beggar, okay? And he was a very persistent beggar. A beggar that was so persistent, he was like glue, okay? He joined himself. He followed this man around and he wouldn't leave, okay? That's what it means when you are glued to somebody. It doesn't mean you have a job. It means that you are so persistent that you have absolutely nothing. And so you're just going around begging, okay? So you see, when, when you have someone following you around that you don't want following around, okay, what do you do? What's the most logical thing you do? Well, you tell them to go do something uh, that you probably never would do. And for this man that the younger son was following around and had glued himself to, uh, sends him off to feed the pigs. And most likely with little uh, to absolutely no intentions of paying him for his labor. Okay? Now, that changes things a lot. And at least for me, that changed the, the entire perspective of the low that this son had actually gotten to. Okay? He wasn't trying to be responsible and rebuild himself. He was begging. And he was at the point where he was willing to do anything and everything, right? Just to be with somebody and to find ways to help himself. You see, when we look at the younger son, okay, he's fighting these pigs for food, okay? And in verse 16, it says he's, he's 
prefer pods, okay? Now, pods, uh, in biblical times, most likely these are carob pods. Uh, pods. If you guys have ever had carob, it's like a, it's a um, substitute for chocolate. Um, my parents used to always get it all the time. We used to eat like these carob-like chocolates. Uh, and they were okay. I don't really remember what they taste like anymore. Um, but, but carob, before it actually becomes like a powder, uh, are these very hard, not very edible uh, pods that you can't eat it until it's turned into powder. Like it's impossible for humans to eat. So you see, when we're looking at the younger son, he was literally at the lowest point of his life, right? He couldn't even eat the food that he was trying to fight for, right? The pods that the pigs were eating, yeah, pigs can eat it, but humans, there's no way, okay? But he has absolutely nothing. He has found himself at the lowest of low, okay? He had nothing good for him going. But to make things worse, he's chilling in a pig pen with a bunch of pigs. And in Jewish honor, or Jewish uh, uh, culture, that's a complete dishonor and disgrace. That's hanging out with the unclean animals that God says is unclean, right? So he's literally in a, in a foreign land. He's in a Gentile land, which Jews were not fond of. He's, he's literally dishonored his family and his community by asking of this shameless request. And then he shamelessly goes about squandering and spending all that he has, his father's inheritance. And then he's in the pig pen of life, okay? And he's, he's literally living with pigs and trying to eat what the pigs are eating. He is the definition of dishonor and shame. Okay. So when we look at the son's behavior, the younger son's behavior, you see, this is a very direct connection to us as sinners. We all have our desires. We have all our wants. We go about on this journey doing things that will satisfy us. We sin against our heavenly father. We dishonor and we bring him shame. We reject his love and his will. We deny him. We take all the gifts that God gives us and then we squander them in a life filled with me, me, me. As a result, we find ourselves eventually spiritually bankrupt. We are found empty, broken, left with no one to help and nowhere to go. So we turn to these, these self-help things to try to pick ourselves up and put our pieces back together. But if that's when we find ourselves truly hitting rock bottom. And ultimately, it comes down to only one solution for those who, just like the young man, find themselves in such a situation. And the parable shows us that. Right? And that's his shameful repentance. Look at Luke 15, 17 to 19. It says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And to spare, and I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. You see, in the midst of his brokenness, as he sat in the pig pen of life, he came to himself and he came to his senses and he remembered the generosity of his father. You see, this statement that he makes showed that he knew exactly what he was missing out on. He knew exactly what his father's grace and compassion was all about. 
Now, it's interesting to think out uh, of his plan to simply just go back to the father as a hired servant. Now, and the reason why he thinks this way is because at that time, hired servants or laborers were typically unskilled and poor. But Old Testament laws, as found in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, uh, actually protected these people and required that their wages be paid in timely manner, right? So that whoever had these hired laborers or these, these uh, workers, um, hired servants, they would have to be paid regardless. So they were protected. They had rights. And uh, this younger son clearly knew this. He knew this very well. Okay? And he was very well versed in, in scripture and understanding this. So this was more than enough for him to get back on his feet and go back to the father. He just wanted the bare minimum. He wasn't asking to re receive original status. He was only asking for the bare minimum. Now imagine with me this. The Pharisees are listening to this story. The scribes and the people there are listening and they're like, okay, good. This boy has come to his senses. He know he made a mistake and now he needs to go home and ask for repentance, right? He's messed up. He needs to go back, confess, okay? Repent, be humiliated for what he did and then be shamed for what he did, and then maybe the father should forgive him and show mercy. But only if he worked his way back and earned that forgiveness. And this is what the train of thought of the people of that time would have been. In a shame-based culture, it would have been very easy for them to say, okay, yeah, he needs to go back, but his forgiveness is only dependent on if he can work his way there. Okay? But what we find here in this story, and this is why I love the story of the prodigal son so much, is that the younger son's actions paint a picture of the kind of repentance that ultimately leads us to salvation. You see, the young lad comes to his senses and he realizes that the situation he is in is quite desperate. He remembers the father's goodness, compassion, generosity, mercy, and he trusts in that. And in the same way, we as sinners can look at our condition Look at the way that we are and look at the goodness and the love of God and we can acknowledge it and we can turn from our sins. You see, it was when the younger son hits rock bottom where he had nowhere to turn and nowhere to go that he could turn to the father, the very person that he had shamed and dishonored. But he realized, despite all of this, that the father was still good, that the character of the father does not change and that that he had this opportunity that he could go back. And I think this is the story of us, right? It's, it's the process of repentance that allows us to be restored back to God. And that's the beautiful power of the gospel message. Now, granted, when we look at the younger son, he clearly had a very low and an inaccurate expectation of his father. But we're going to save that for our last week. Let's read the last four verses. Verse 20, And he rose and came to his father. And when he was a great way off, the father saw him and had compassion, and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring him the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son was dead and is alive again. He was found uh, lost and is found, and they began to be married. This is typically where we end the story of the prodigal son. We stop here thinking this is the end, but as you'll see in the next two weeks, we're going to dive in much deeper. But what I want to pull away today, uh, and the focus of the younger son, is this. The prodigal son 
reminds us that God's grace is inexhaustible. You can never outsin God's forgiveness and grace. Romans 5.20, the second part of that, Paul understands this. He says, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. You see, this is such a powerful parable to us today, church. When Jesus told the parable to this crowd of people that included the Pharisees who were out to get him, he was pointing to the power of the gospel message and how the gospel resides above their cultural and ethical norms. God is a God who loves to save the lost. We see that in the three parables. Even if the lost intentionally chooses to become lost, the sheep did not choose to be lost, the coin did not choose to be lost, but the prodigal son chose to be lost. Yet God loves to save those people. Jesus was showing and teaching a message that even those who stray from God Even those who are completely going in the opposite direction of what God planned and intended are all worthy to be loved, all worthy to receive His mercy, and all worthy to receive His grace. That even though we sinners, just like the younger son, feel that we deserve the bare minimum, we find a God that comes along and throws us the most extravagant party you can ever think of. You see, God loves to save the lost. And the reality is, is that we're lost. You see, church, this is a challenge, but also an opportunity for us to reflect on our own lives. This is the challenge. As, as, uh, are we as a church willing to create a community and create a new norm to be a church that is willing to accept those sinners who purposely pull themselves away from God, who bring shame, dishonor, to the name of being a Christian? Are we willing as a church to take a step further and learn to love the younger son like the father did? And I pray that we do. And we can. I pray. I really do. Because hear me out. We are all lost. We are all the younger son in this story. And I want you to uh, reflect on this. I want to challenge you to reflect. I may not know exactly where everyone stands with the Father. I'm not sure where you are spiritually in the sense of, have you you taken a a sharp left and and drifted away from the Lord? Or, Or how close you are to Him, your proximity. But if you're in the boat where you're like, man... I don't know. Like, I don't know if, if I can really go back to the Father. I don't know if I can um, be accepted for my past mistakes and my failures. I'm not even sure if going to God is going to give me anything. Because what can God really do for me? Let me diagnose you uh, as a spiritual doctor on, on why you're feeling this way. You see, first of all, you're lost. But more importantly, you're homesick. You might be like, wait, pastor, like, what do you mean? I'm not homesick. That's odd, right? But you see, I believe that if you're in this position where you're completely torn apart, you're broken, you're not sure where to go, and and the only thing you can think of is, oh, maybe God, like, what can God really do for me? And you're entertaining this thought of maybe finding God. You see, that's being homesick. And you're longing to be where God is. And that's actually a beautiful gift that God gives to you. Being homesick is not a bad thing. 
Because being homesick means that there's a place that you want to go. There's a place that you know that's so much better than what you have now. And we're all lost. We're all homesick. We're all trying to find home. I don't know about you, but I strongly believe in this ideal of, of brokenness and, and this ideal of, of I'm a lost soul, right? I'm a lost individual and I'm searching for God all the time. Does that mean that, that I'm not spiritual or I don't know God? No, not necessarily. But we have to acknowledge and realize that we are all like the lost son, the prodigal son in our story today. This beautiful parable reminds us, just as the younger son did, in his shameless request, in his shameless rebellion, in his shameful realization of his deeds, in his wanting to go back, repent and go back to the Father. That there is a Father who is so ready to throw the most beautiful party for you and I. Because we are all lost, we are homesick. And we are finding our way home. And there's a father that we serve that wants to give you so much more. Let's pray.